Let's take our Bibles, please, for our Bible study. We're headed to 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel 23. Years ago, when President Lincoln was elected for his first um, term, they had the inauguration at Washington, D.C., and we're talking in 1861 when he came up to the platform in Herden's autobiography that was the classic of that time, first one that came out. He described Lincoln. He said that he saw firsthand Lincoln coming up to the platform and he said he was just out of his element. He was wearing a coat that he wasn't used to. He was used to a frock and, and one that was more <clears throat> homespun. But his handlers, and because of the occasion, he had this, this satin type of a coat on. He had in his hand a cane that he never used to wear, carry with him. But that day he did, and he had this cane that on the top had this huge pearl about the size of an egg, they said, which was totally on Lincoln. He had this huge top hat that was brand new, it was obvious. And when he came up for his time to do the inauguration, give his speech, he stood there at the platform and he was unsure what to do with the cane. There was no place to put it. So he walked over and propped it at the edge of one of the railings and then he was holding his hat. There was no empty seat to put it on. There was no spot to, to lay it down. It didn't seem fitting to put it on the ground. And then from behind him came a man who was sitting, one of the dignitaries, who stood up and came up and offered to just hold his hat and then sat back down. He said Lincoln got into his comfortable mode as he spoke, but he could tell that he was most comfortable with that man who offered to hold his hat. That man afterwards was the one that was described as listening the most intently to Lincoln's speech that day. That man who held his hat immediately after that started going across the nation to the south as well as the north speaking on behalf of Lincoln trying to encourage both Democrats and Republicans to support his policies. He traveled all over and even to the point where he was ridiculed, he was mocked, he was th- things were thrown him at him as he spoke. He continued to try to call the people to support Lincoln. Three months later he died of exhaustion. When he died, Lincoln said about that man, he said, he and I are about the best friends in the world. And those who knew Lincoln said is the only time they openly saw him weep during the time of the White House except for when his son died. This man meant a lot to him. The man we know who held his hat, we all have all heard his name if we've studied anything about Lincoln's life. We know him as Lincoln's opponent, Stephen A. Douglas. But Lincoln called him his best friend. You see, it doesn't make any difference if you have some disagreements. You can still have a really, really good friend. Somebody who is supportive. Somebody who is helpful. And whenever you look in history behind great people, there are great friends. When you look across churches, behind those who are really growing in the Lord, you'll find there's good friends helping them to grow. There's this status that comes through Scripture in the life of David where there's a section of Scripture that it's, as you go through the story, there's an insert time and again about a really good friend to David. You all know his name, right? It's who? Jonathan. Jonathan and David show up through Scriptures time and time again. There, again, there's, there's no real one singular passage that describes them in detail. There's a whole lot of references, a whole lot of verses that describe how close they were. There's verses like it says this in chapter 18, the soul of Jonathan was bound with the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. We read another text. They made a covenant. 
talking about Jonathan, because he loved him as his own soul. We read another text, Jonathan delighted much in David. We read David speaking and saying, your father knows that I have found grace in your eyes. We read another text where it says that Jonathan and David, that they loved each other, and it says he loved him as his own soul. We read in another text that when they are grieving over what Saul has, has determined to do, to kill David, and David and Jonathan have to depart and be aside. They kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Now I find myself doing what probably some of you are doing right now. We have been so bombarded in our culture. We have been so hit with this idea of gay rights and gay, gay relationships that we read this and say, hey, maybe the kissing one another means that they were homosexuals. We just immediately, we even decry close friendships because we have been so inundated with our culture and the perversion of culture that we start to suspect even people like these guys. Let me, let me assure you of something. Theirs was not a homosexual relationship. It wasn't that at all. It was one of genuine friendship, but I know it's not a homosexual relationship. You say, well, how can you say that? The passages of Scripture talk about he stripped himself of his robe. They kissed one another. That they talk about their love was as wonderful as a love for a man and a woman. How can you not say that it was gay? For a number of reasons. Number one, they were both married and had children from multiple different marriages. The idea of stripping the robe of the outer garment is basically taking off a garment of significance that would identify Jonathan as being a military leader or the prince and giving it to his friend. It wasn't the idea that you and I think in our perverted culture of stripping raw. It's the idea of, gen of real close friends in the ancient Near Eastern world. They highly valued friendships a whole lot more than you and I as Americans do. In fact, most of the rest of the world does. We are more productive, more time-oriented. Most of the world isn't as concerned about time and schedules as they are about relationships and being there for one another. Men kissing one another in different cultures, it's not uncommon, especially in ancient times. Some of you who have traveled, you know that it is true, not as much as what it used to be. But I remember traveling in Romania, and it wasn't unusual in the 90s to see men greet one another with a kiss in their churches, in their meeting places. So because of American culture, we cannot put our perverted thinking upon scriptures and assume something evil. This idea of being so emotional that you're hugging and you're crying on one another and you're just embracing grieving in other cultures was very, very open grieving, very common. And so these two, we know as well that, um, that theirs was not a gay relationship, a homosexual relationship. Why? Because it says David had a heart after God's own heart. He behaved himself wisely. You do remember that when we talk about wisdom in Scripture, wisdom has the idea of applying God's principles to your life. And so he's applying God's word in all of his ways, and the Lord was with him. This would not have been said about David if David and Jonathan were being immoral and were, were practicing some type of forbidden immoral relationship. How do I know that? 
because God would not have commended them. You see, in scriptures, God made it very clear that homosexuality is wrong, that it is a perversion. It is not, even though our society says different, it is not approved by God. In fact, we can go back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we cannot rewrite history. I know it's happening. I know we rewrite American history. But you and I with the Bible, we cannot rewrite Bible history. Bible destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their blatant immorality. We know as well that God said this, you shall not live with mankind, or lie, excuse me. It was not a correct. You shall not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. We read as well, if a man also lie with mankind as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Today we read in scriptures what God says about homosexuality and practicing it. It doesn't bring God's approval. It shows and it displays that there is not a heart for God, that there is not a desire for God. In fact, we read in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves shall inherit the kingdom of God. God doesn't approve of homosexuality. You cannot twist scripture to find any place that God did it. Now, you cannot take David and Jonathan's relationship and try to use that or abuse that to say homosexuality is right. But if you were to take that relationship, here's what you do find. Oh, I wanted to comment on this. Somebody might say, well, wait a minute, David, adultery was forbidden, and God, and, and David committed adultery. That is true. David did do that. But that doesn't mean then that he and Jonathan were gay. The reason I say this is because of this idea, as soon as he did commit adultery, God was dealing with him. God convicted him. God chastened him. There is no such God reaction to he and Jonathan's relationship. God commended it. He did not condemn it. So it is something that is in line with Scripture. It is something that is good and great, but not what we would call a homosexual relationship. It was two men that enjoyed a great, great friendship. In fact, in, towards the end of, it's, it's the last time they're together, chapter 23. Chapter 23 writes about the last time that these guys are able to get together. David abode in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. In verse 14, Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him not into his hand. And David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life. David went into the wilderness of Ziph in the woods. Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said unto him, Fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. I shall be next unto you. And that also Saul my father, he knows it. And they two made a covenant before the Lord. And John, David abode in the woods, and Jonathan then went to his own house. Great friendship. Wonderful friendship, despite the differences. These two had a lot of... They, they didn't have... They had some things in common, but they, they weren't like growing up in the same environment. Jonathan was of the tribe of Benjamin. 
Jonathan was a prince growing up in the king's household. Jonathan was a seasoned soldier by the time David comes on the scene. Jonathan is an individual who was elevated into the family and as was recognized as, as his dad says, you're going to be the future king. David, on the other hand, is from the tribe of Judah. David, on the other hand, is a shepherd. David is even neglected by his own family. David and his family, they don't run in circles of the king or the court. The, Saul, the, the time we looked at last week, Saul, after David kills Goliath, says, whose family is he? Doesn't even know the household. Doesn't even know the parentage. So they had great differences, and yet they become very close friends. Now, David didn't take this lightly. If you go to chapter 18, when David had the opportunity to marry Merib, the oldest daughter of Saul, and then when he had the opportunity to marry Michael, one of the younger daughters of Saul, both times he says, it is not, it is a, it is not a light thing to be related to the king. So David was hesitant about becoming really close to the royalty because he saw them as somebody very, very high above himself. And yet he and Jonathan, man, they click. They become close friends despite the differences, despite the difficulties. In this whole story of David and Jonathan, which takes up all of chapter 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and 3, where Jonathan and David are inserted in paragraphs, the whole story is all about Jonathan and David's friendship and how it survives all the difficulties. Remember, they met. The first time that they meet is, uh, is when David kills Goliath. And at that time, what happens is John, Saul starts becoming jealous of David because David's popularity for killing the giant and going out and leading a battle. So we looked at this last week where he becomes jealous, he becomes angry, and then he tries to go to the point where he tries to personally kill David. Twice he throws a javelin at him. Then what he does is says, I'm going to have David killed by the Philistines. I'll put him at the front of the battle. And he talks about how he puts him out there and David's fighting and he's in the front lines and yet he survives. And it comes to a point that Saul says, if you want to marry my younger daughter, I've already married off Merib, you want to marry Michael, you can marry her, but you've got to get a thousand Philistines. Kill them off as an attempt to have David killed by the Philistines. Then it goes on a little bit further that Jonathan understands dad is trying to get rid of David, so he goes and talks to dad, calms dad down. David comes back to the palace, and he plays the harp once again to soothe the king. The king tries to kill him again. And then after he tries to kill him, and Jad, he sends assassins to David's home. David escapes out the window, and he runs off. And so what happens is Saul says to his daughter, why did you help him? She, he's mad at his daughter, and he sends assassins, troops, after David. The troops get there, and they're overcome by the Spirit of God three times. Saul comes after him. And so Saul is, is very upset. And when Jonathan tries to befriend David in chapter 20, you back up into the middle of this story. He's, he's trying to plead for David and, and say, Dad, slow down. David's not such a problem. It says in verse 30, Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said unto him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do not I know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own confusion under the confusion of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives upon the ground, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Wherefore now send him and fetch him unto me, for he shall die. 
And Jonathan answers his father and says to him, Wherefore shall he be slain? What has he done? And dad is so mad. Look at the next verse. Verse 33, Saul cast a javelin at Jonathan to kill his own son. And so despite all of these difficulties, these two men, they remain close friends. Their friendship survives. All the challenges, all the corruption, despite even the distance that's put between them. By the way, just, just there's a distance of time in these stories. From chapter 17 all the way to chapter 23, we're talking 15 plus years. That there's time going by where there's, a, there's this ongoing period where they have to live and not be close to each other. Sometimes they're in the king's court. Sometimes David has to be on the run. David ends up eventually living with the Philistines. And yet their friendship survives. What is it about these two that have a friendship that isn't, that isn't so locked into just a moment in time? What is it about their friendship that even in the challenges and the difficulties, even when they disagree, as we'll see in a few moments, they can still maintain their friendship? What is it about them? What is it in their life that makes their friendship so great? I, I look at it, and I learn a couple thoughts just as we get started. One, we can learn from their example that friendships are needed by people of all ages and all settings. If there's probably the greatest weakness that we are experiencing as a church after COVID and living in the time that we live in with all the media devices which should bring us close together, it's the distancing of people. It's where people come and they gather for worship and they feel lonely. They feel like they don't have a real close friend. It's a, it's a battle for individuals who, who in the Christian family, in the Christian realm, they, they worship together, they enjoy fellowship, but they don't know if there's somebody, somebody that they can really, really rely on, somebody that will come beside them in the moment, that they could call at any time. Probably the greatest hue and cry, if we were to start expressing it, would be people here this morning saying, I want a really good friend. I want a close friend. We, we know that that's, that that's a battle in the New Testament. We know that it's a difficulty in the Old Testament. Because God talks about it. He encourages it. And most of us say, well, we know how to do friendships. And yet God says, I'm going to tell you how to do them because we don't always know how to do them right. We don't always treat friends the way we should. And so God gives us instructions about friendships because he knows we need it. He says to his own friends at times, he says, would you pray with me? Remember that night he says, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. Let's go into the garden. Would you pray with me? And even those that he banked on, he had to come back and said, can't you pray with me for one hour? He was disappointed in his friends. We know this is true. That all these different characters, there's duos. They have somebody. Somebody that stands by. Nobody is a lone ranger. Even Fred had Barney. Rocky has Bullwinkle. You know, the, 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 friendships are just a part of our, of our culture, but more importantly, part of the church. That it's critical. And I know this, even godly people, they need friends. Jesus needed it in the Garden of Gethsemane. I know that godly people like David needed a friend. 
You know how that story goes about a little girl one time? She was so upset because there was a storm at night and the storm was blowing and there was thunder and lightning. She called for her mom and her mom sitting at the bed trying to soothe her and she's saying to the little girl, she's saying, listen, whenever this happens and get scared, just call upon God. She says, I did call upon God. She says, well, that should be enough. No, I need somebody with skin on them. We need people with skin at times. We need people that can come by us. We go through scriptures. All these men of God, they had partnerships. They had somebody to give them a hand, to help them out, to, to assist them, time and time out, to be there and to give them some, some help. The married couples, the teams, the disciples. Friendships are really critical. They're important. And even though David was surrounded by his 400 men, in chapter 23, he still needed Jonathan. And it was Jonathan that pulled him through. So if you have that one or two or three really close friends, it's okay. You don't need hundreds of them as long as you have a few that can help you and you are such a friend to some others. I I know this is true. Good friendships take time. They take work. If they're not maintained... They vanish. So we look at the text and say, what is it about David and Jonathan's friendships? There are so many things that could be talked about how to build friendships, but I just want to highlight four thoughts, four characteristics of their friendship that you want to implement in your relationships with others. Your friend, whether it be another man, another woman, your friend, whether it be your spouse, your friend, whether it be your brother or sister physically, your friend, whether it be a classmate, these are characteristics that you can look at David and Jonathan and say, hey, they are things that I need to work on. Number one is this. Number one on developing and becoming a good friend, make sure that you are spiritually based. What I mean by that is this. Those two started off with a friendship that was, had something in common. They both had spiritual desires. This idea of, of values. Remember after the story of Goliath, that when David went out, right after that we read in chapter 18 verse 1, if you look at it, Jonathan's heart was knit with David. Why is that? Because David had gone out into battle. And when he had gone out into the battle, he said to the Goliath, he says that I come in the name of the Lord. And I'm trusting the Lord. The Lord delivered me from the, from the lion. He delivered me from the bear. He's going to deliver you into my hands. You come with spears and swords. I come in the name of the Lord. Well, you know what? Jonathan had that same, that same thought. Jonathan had that same type of faith. When you go back into the story in chapter 14, even before David is brought up at all, Jonathan is out in the battlefield. The Philistines are gathered. Like, let's say the Philistines, you guys just became the enemies. The Philistines are up there in the balcony. Jonathan is down here below. And Jonathan says the Philistines hold a higher ground. He says to his servants, maybe God has delivered this into our hands. And so here's the test. He says, if God is going to deliver him into our hands, we're going to trust the Lord. We're going to make ourselves known. We're going to stop hiding. And if they say, come on up here and we're going to beat you up, we're going to go up and we're going to wipe them out. And so they make themselves known. They, the Philistines start mocking them. And he says, hey, the Lord's given us these people. And in the name of the Lord, they go up that mountainside. They beat all those individuals up there because he had a confidence in the Lord. So when he sees David going out against Goliath with that same confidence, his heart is bound to him, knit to him, because they have this same desire to serve the Lord. 
But it's seen beyond that. In chapter 20, verse 42, when this time when they're going through a difficult moment and Saul has just tried to kill his own son, try to spear him, David and Jonathan get together. And it says in verse 42, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace for as much as we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord be between me and you and between my seed and your seed forever. They rose and they depart. Do you know what this is meaning? They wanted God to bless each other even while they were separated. They wanted God to bless so much that they say, God, even when we're apart, help our friendship to be one that is, that is going well and that we're right with one another. So they pray together as the Lord would bless us. May I ask you a simple question? Do you pray for your friends? Do you honestly, genuinely pray for your friends? Those that you say are our close friends. Do you, do you pray, God help nothing come between us, and if something does, we're going to deal with it? Or are you the type of person that you get miffed and you let it ride, and you don't deal with it, and your friendships don't last real long, and they don't get deep, because you don't deal with issues. You don't deal with conflicts. Even, in, even your friend might be a family member. It might be a spouse. And your relationship is not real, real intimate. Now I'm not talking physically. I'm talking in an emotional, spiritual way. That you don't pray together. Or, or you don't even deal with issues. If you base it on spiritual concerns, you're going to pray. You're going to make sure things are right. You're going to ask God to bless that other person. In fact, their idea of a friendship was, I want to minister. I want to help you spiritually. Go back to chapter 23. I already read the text where this is the last time that they get together, but I didn't highlight a phrase in verse 14. It says in verse 14, David abode in the wilderness in the strongholds. He goes into the wilderness and reigned in the mountain at Ziph. Saw Saul, now look at this, verse 14. Saul sawed him. What's your Bible read? The next couple words. Every day. We're talking now for a period of around 10 years. Every day Saul is after him. Every day David is looking over his back. Do you understand what kind of pressure that is? Every day you're hunted. Every day the IRS is after you. Every day some enemy wants you. Every day you're fearful of this terroristic king coming and trying to kill you. That pressure, that challenge would be absolutely draining. And so what happens? The passage says that as David is being hunted every day, Jonathan comes. Did you catch what Jonathan did for him? It says in verse 16, Jonathan arose, went to David in the wood, and strengthened his hand in God. He helped him out spiritually. He encourages him. He, he, he builds him up in the Lord. When's the last time you built up your friend in the Lord? When's the last time you went to them with Bible verses of a blessing from your devotions that you wanted to encourage them? Now here's how Jonathan did it. Jonathan is looking at David and he says to David, fear not, he says, as he talks with him. He says, the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. What is he doing? He's quoting God's promise to David. The promise that God has made to David when David was 16 years old, you will be the future king. Jonathan is quoting that. An idea, a thought that David knew, but David need to be reminded of this. Do you, have you ever done this? Have you ever in your life gotten to the point, you know the Lord never leaves you nor forsakes you, but you've had a moment, you say, where are you, God? 
Has that ever happened? You know that God says that he will answer your prayers, but you have a moment, God, do you even hear me? You have a moment where you know the word of God says that God will never allow anything above that you are able to handle. But you turn to God and you say, this is too much. And you need to be reminded of truths that you know. And your friend shows up. And your friend tells you and reminds you of grace, of promises. That's what Jonathan did for David. Jonathan was such a help to him spiritually. And telling him and hoping and encouraging him that David had, and I'm stuck, guys, you got to help me out. He says that he's, he strengthens him in the Lord and gives him assistance. Question is, what about you? Are you that type of friend that you are one that you are saying we're going to be friends in a spiritual realm? Are you the type of person who is praying regularly for your friends? Are you a type of an individual that in your life, it's still, I'm locked out. Okay. It might be this thing, John. Are you the type of individual that is, say, is praying for your friend, that is assisting them? Do you quote scriptures for them? Do you, do you, do you bring to the friendship, do you actually bring to it spiritual contributions? Or are you just taking from the friendship? Are you an individual that they bank on, they look to, they turn to when they need spiritual assistance. David and Jonathan had that type of relationship. It had a spiritual substance to it. They have a second factor to their friendship that is important. It was what I'm going to call sincere. What I mean by that is that in their friendship that it was genuine. It was deep. It had substance to it. By the sincerity, it was seen in their communication. In the communication, remember when they first meet? We read about it in chapter 18. Their hearts are knit. And if you flip back to chapter 18, they get together and Jonathan, verse 3, made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. So he stripped himself of his robe that was upon him, gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and the girdle. Now, some, some have made all kinds of ideas about that. Let me just conclude. These are personal items that belonged to Jonathan. There's only two swords in Israel at this time. These are Jonathan's own personal weapons. He gives something of great quality to his friend to say, I value you. Now we all have that. We all have those types of friends that have maybe given us something of quality. But Jonathan gave it from the heart that, that was lasting. I'm, I'm not supposed to do this. This is totally politically incorrect to have a rifle in church. Okay. <laughs> But somebody gave me a Red Ryder BB gun. Okay, it's not, it's, it, it, you know, it's not of high value except for if you want to shoot out somebody's eye you know, and make a movie about the Red Ryder BB gun. But a friend of mine gave it to me. I, it's, it's, I don't use it for protection. Okay? I, it's not loaded. But it has all kinds of things written on it. Thank you. Faithful friend. Um, preacher, idea of God bless you, idea of missions and working together, Wild West Wayne. <laughs> the one that was really important is when I reopen up, it says this, if you read this, I owe you lunch the next time you come. 
I got the lunch out of him. (laughs) This is from one of our dearest friends in the world, one of our missionary friends. And to me, it's precious. It's not because it's a Red Ryder BB gun. It's because it came from a friend. A friend who gave it uh, something from his own background in childhood that was of value to him. Friends do those types of things. Friends extend themselves. They're sincere in their communication. They're sincere in their commitments. We just read that David and Jonathan made a covenant By the way, if you read through the text, they made it in chapter 18, they made a covenant. They made the covenant again in another chapter as we go through. I'm still locked out, gentlemen. They made it in chapter chapter 23. They made it again in chapter 20. That they made these covenants time and time and time again. And so there's this idea of commitments is that they didn't stop in fact, as you go through this, just shut the thing off, okay? And we're distracting everybody at this point, me most of all, okay? What happens in their commitments is that David and Jonathan said, even be committed to the next generation. David follows through with his commitments. David, years later, after Jonathan is dead, David says, is there anybody in Jonathan's family that I can show mercy to? He finds that Jonathan has a son that has survived. His name is Mephibosheth. David gets him out of the wilderness, brings him to the palace, and restores him to a place of of recognition and hospitality. Theirs was a friendship that had a form of communication where they would say, I value you. They had a form of friendship that they made commitments and they followed through. They had a form of friendship that had a constancy to it. What I mean by that is this. When when Saul is attacking David and criticizing David and trying to destroy David, you read that Jonathan speaks well of David. That Jonathan defends David before his father. When people criticize your friend, do you speak well of them? When other family members make some derogatory statement. Are you constant in your friendship, loyal in your friendship, that you still speak well of them? Too often our friendships are based upon who's nearby. If they're not here, I can talk about them. I can tear them down. Not David and Jonathan. David and Jonathan had a commitment. They had a constancy. They had this this loyalty to one another. But their friendship was based on spiritual concerns. Their friendship was sincere. Their friendship was supportive of each other. They were supportive of each other. How do I know that? Because there's time and again that they try to help each other out. We read about the account that that Saul is angry and trying to get rid of David. So Jonathan supports him. We already read that, where we read about how in chapter 20, I'm sorry, chapter 19, where Jonathan, it says, verse 4, spoke good of David unto unto Saul his father, and he said, let not the king sin against him, against David, because he has not sinned against you, because his works have been to you very good. And he put his life in, in his hand and slew the Philistine. The Lord wrought a great salvation. So there he's supporting his friend. We read a little bit further in chapter 20, when dad wants to get rid of David again, has tried to kill him again. 
again. That Jonathan says to his dad, he says uh, to him, he says, well, let, what do you intend to do? And so what happens in chapter 20, it Saul's anger is kindled against, verse 30, against Jonathan. He says, you son of a perverse woman, you rebellious woman, and he wants David to be killed. He casts the javelin, verse 33. So we read in verse 34, Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did eat no meat. He grieved for David because his father had shamed him. And then he talks about how he goes and he meets with David. And he has that arrangement made to let David know where he stands. And we read in verse 41, David arose out of the place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, bowing himself three times. They kissed one another. They wept with one another until David was exceedingly grieving more than Jonathan. They're supporting one another. They're saying to one another, you're valuable. And even though this is a hard situation and we grieve over it, they're there for one another. They're they're supporting each other. And and they're relaying to one another, the Lord be between you and me. I'm going to pray for you. You pray for me. We read in chapter 23, when Saul is hunting him, we read in this thought, here's, here's support. Here is support at its, at its biggest level. I want you to catch this in verse 15. And it says, David saw that Saul came out to seek his life. David went to the wilderness. And it says, Jonathan, Saul's son. What's your Bible to read? Any of you following me? Chapter 16 or verse 16. Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David. Even though Jonathan knew this would be risky, Jonathan got up, traveled to the wilderness to support his friend. When's the last time you got up, you traveled to support a friend? That you put aside your schedule. That you stopped doing what was important to you and said, they need encouragement. When's the last time you did this for a friend who was elderly, who was shut in, that you got up and you went to them? When's the last time that that you went to a relative who was going through a difficult time? You got up, you went. We expect others to do that for us. But when's the last time you did that? You went out of your way. And so they're supporting each other. They're sincere in this relationship. They have a spiritual quality to it, but they're willing to sacrifice. Jonathan is willing to defend David even though he knows his dad is angry and his dad tries to kill him. But look at chapter 23. Look at the phrase that we have not read where Jonathan get up, he strengthens him, and it says in verse 17, Fear not, for the hand of my father shall not find thee, you shall be king over Israel. Stop. Time out. Who is saying this to David? The prince heir. The one who is supposed to, by, by political settings, the one who is supposed to be getting the throne from his dad. What is he doing at this moment? He's sacrificing the throne. He's giving it up. He knows God wants David to be the man. And I'm not going to fight this any at all. David, you be the king. I am willing to be second fiddle here. In fact, notice what he says a little bit further. He says, you shall be king and I shall be next to you. I'm willing to do this. I don't have to fight for my rights. 
political rights. I don't have to fight for my prestige. I am going to sacrifice for you. I'm going to give up. You know, there, there's a test coming this week. I don't know which way it's going to come. It might be for you teens. We come to camp this week, and there's going to be kids who are visiting who need the gospel. Will you be one who says, I'm going to try to befriend them? I will get up out of my seat, and I will go to them. Get out of my clique, and I will seek to minister. I will seek to encourage them in the Lord. Maybe the test is going to be this week. We're going to send out an email this week. And in the email, it might say, so-and-so has just had an incident or an accident. And they need encouragement. They need your prayer. Then the test comes. Will you be a friend enough that you will minister to them, you will pray for them, you will contact them? Maybe the test is going to come this week. That it's going to be a situation where somebody who's dear to you, somebody who is a close friend, other family members, other friends are going to rake them over the coals. How loyal will you be? How supportive will you be? If they're wrong, you go to them and confront them, but you don't make them the point of gossip. But you're going to be tested. And when, then we'll see, where do you go with the Word of God? Are you going to be one like Jonathan that you will speak well of that individual even though others don't? See, we talk about friendship. We encourage friendship, but do we do it? Do we actually live it? Do we actually pray for our friends? Do we actually encourage them spiritually? Do we actually make a difference in their life so that they are walking closer to the Lord? Do we help them when they're down and they're out? That's what Jonathan and David provide for us. A challenge of not just wording it, not just saying it, but actually doing it. In my closing slides, I had these two comments. If you look and listen to this message and you say, hey, hey yo, what are we going to do with all this? My first comment was this. If you are desiring to have a really good friendship with somebody, then you are obligated by Scripture to become a friend. He that hath friends must show himself friendly. It always amazes me how people want friendships to come to them but they don't want to invest out. They judge the church. They judge the Christians. Why isn't somebody reaching out to me? Why isn't somebody reaching out to me? Yes, we're supposed to. Don't, don't, let's put that on the burner for a second. But you who are mature believers, who have been saved a length of time, instead of sitting back and saying, somebody come to me, why don't you practice scripture? He that hath friends must show himself friendly. You go out of your way this week. You reach out to others. You become a friend. In order to have a good friend, you need to first of all be a good friend. And ask somebody. Ask somebody what they need, how you can help, how you can pray. And we need that. We desperately need that. Hudson Taylor, we all know a heroic missionary. China Inland Missions, we all know the stories, how he produced so much, and yet the second year he went to the mission field, he wrote back to his mother, and he said, I am so sad, 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 sad. Because none of the other missionaries wanted to deal with him. 
Many of those who were back in, in Britain who had encouraged and prayed for him, not a single person wrote. He was, his support was stopping. Everything was going. Then all of a sudden, God sent William Burns to him, a 20-year veteran missionary who came. You and I don't even know William Burns. Never heard of all of his successes. All he did was come and be a friend to Hudson Taylor and support him, pray for him, help him. What kind of friend are you? What kind of friend have you been as a church to Mike and Alicia? To our other missionaries? In praying for them, in communicating with them, in contacting and saying, when they show up, we'll hug, we'll greet, we'll say, oh, they're such dear friends. How about communicating? How about supporting? How about sacrificing? If you want a friend, you must show yourself friendly. But I say this in closing. If you want a really, really good friend, let me recommend to you the best friend of all, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is sincere. Jesus Christ is spiritual. Jesus Christ is supportive. Jesus Christ has already sacrificed for you. He will provide anything and everything you need spiritually to walk and to go. He'll even give you a home in heaven. He will build a place for you if you call upon him. Repent of your sin and make things right between you and he. Your friendship with him is distanced now because of sin and his holiness. You need to ask him for forgiveness, realizing that he died, buried, resurrected, on, and has provided for you that opportunity for forgiveness. You pray, you ask him, he will give you forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. But not only that, he will give you the gift of his friendship. He will bless you, guide you, use you in spiritual ways that you cannot imagine. Does that mean everything in life is hunky-dory? No but it means you will have the most loyal friend for all eternity. You need Christ. My friend, we use that loosely at times. My friend, be a friend. Be a friend.